Michelle Durand Wood is a blogger at DearWinnipeg.com. He often writes about civic issues, and he joins us on the phone now to talk about two dozen peace officers on Winnipeg Transit. Michelle, good morning. Good morning, Hal. Do you like this idea? We needed to take action of some kind. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's uh, it's something, right? It makes us feel like we're doing something. Um, you know, from my perspective, I think we're we're a little bit missing the boat. Putting putting police officers on 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 buses um, is is kind of a reactive effort. I mean, of course, they're not being called police officers; they're being called peace officers that have the power to detain and arrest. But you know, basically, they're police officers under a different name. But also, like the money that we're spending here, five million dollars to put on five routes. Uh, you know, 24, 24 officers like that. That's that's really a very small portion of people that are going to be on the bus. And and I think part of the problem is that we're looking at it as you know we're at, you know a recent spate of violence. Um, you know, we're looking at it as a transit problem. You know, as well, violence on transit buses is a transit problem. Same as we looked at you know violence at the, the library is a library problem. But really, what it what it is is we got to look at you know bigger bigger picture. And what it is 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 actually a public a public space problem. Right? We have violence in our public spaces, not only in the library or on the buses, but at the bus stops, on sidewalks. And, um, you know, there, there's a risk here that, that what we're, all we're going to do is displace it, right? So instead of getting stabbed at the library, you're going to get stabbed outside the library. Or, you know, instead of, of getting assaulted on a bus, you're, you're going to get assaulted outside of a bus, right? So we've got to look at a, a much bigger approach to this, um, to safety, um, and, and, of course, to, to usability, right? I think part of the goal here is to get people to use transit more because, obviously, it's a financial necessity for the city to get more people using transit um, because everybody driving everywhere every time is unaffordable. Uh, it just costs too much in roads. Um, so, you know, you know, the important part is to look at, at spending money that might do more than one thing. So, you know, for instance, we, there was a story in the news not too long ago about uh, somebody coming off a bus, um, getting assaulted, but she was able to escape from it by hopping on another bus, right? So, so increased frequency is actually adding not only safety because you can, you can just hop on the next bus because there's one coming right away, or if you're on a bus and there's a disruption, you can get off knowing that uh, there's going to be another bus coming right away. I'll just have to hop on the next bus. Um, but it also, in addition to providing safety, it's also providing you know, a better transit experience is transit that's more usable. But, you know, even bigger picture than that, we have to remember that transit is, is the middle part of a walking trip, right? So this gets back to this, our public space kind of conversation is that, you know, everybody who's on transit, everybody who's at a transit stop got there by walking, right? And so we have to make it easier, safer for people to be on those sidewalks in public space to provide exactly that, those, those proverbial eyes on the street, which is what, is more of a, a crime prevention, right? Policing is, is more reactive. Um, you know, you call the police after a crime is committed, not, not before, right? And, and, and it's those eyes on the street, more people in public that, that makes it safer and, and, and more productive for people, people to be there. And, and the things that we need to do for that are, are like super varied, right? It comes down to like, you know, snow clearing on sidewalks is part of that conversation. Uh, street trees is part of that conversation. More seating on, on sidewalks is part of that conversation. Uh, you know, restaurant patios is part of that conversation. Speed limits is part of that conversation. You know, we always talk about reducing uh, vehicle speed wherever there are uh, people and, and vehicles interacting. It's part about not only safety from vehicles, but it's also safety of the public sphere, a sphere and also making it more pleasant to be there, right? Every 10 kilometers an hour in reduction in speed, vehicle mm-hmm. speed is a 40% reduction in noise levels, right? Yeah. So we've got to make it so that, that people can, can, can use transit um, 
you know, obviously you can't use transit if the bus can get to the stop, but the riders can't. So what we're really looking at is making it safer to be everywhere, not only downtown, but in our neighborhood. And so that's a really... Okay, so, so Michelle, let me, let me, let me, there's lots there, okay? Yeah, uh, let me, totally. let me jump in. No, it's okay. I, this is what I love about you because you often, you're causing me to think a little bit. And, and that's why I mm-hmm. like, because you often have a different take on things. And yeah. so let, let me jump in because I want to ask you a couple of things. And you're sure. right, there's, yeah. there's lots of stuff we need to do to make our city better and, and safer. But back to the, uh, uh, the idea of peace officers on transit. You don't think that even just the presence of somebody in uniform on one of these routes where there have been problems might, you think it will just send it elsewhere, it won't necessarily help. Is that kind of your main point? Well, look, I think there's a ter- certain type of rider that will be encouraged to see this. Um, and, and that it will encourage them to, to get back on transit. Uh, but, yeah, if we just break down the numbers, we're looking at $5 million just for this year, which is not even a full year, right? We're already into March, and we haven't even, you know, it's going to take a couple months to get this going. $5 million for, like, 24, 25 people on five routes. That's five officers per route. In any given route, there's a lot more than five buses. So, so really, it's really a small fraction of buses that are going to have um, peace officers on them. Um, mm. You know, if... <laughs> Somebody wants to cause a disruption and they get on a bus that has a peace officer on it, they can get right off and then just take the next one that won't have a peace officer on it, right? So it, it, to me, it's, it's a little bit of a, a question of value for money. Like, what could we be doing with this $5 million a year that might have a bigger impact? But also thinking that, you know, it's a complex issue, right? There's a lot of things yeah. that go into it. And, and I don't right. think that we can say, if we spend this money on this one thing, it's going to solve it, right? It, it, we, I think we got to look at, at um, a lot of smaller steps um, that work together. Um, Here, here's the problem for politicians like Mayor Gillingham oh, and, yeah. and council is we see problems, safety issues on transit, and people want it dealt with now. We can talk about, you know, it's just like the root causes of crime and the root causes mm-hmm. of homelessness and poverty. And, and this mm-hmm. you're absolutely right about all of that. But when we see people getting attacked with machetes, on a Winnipeg Transit bus, people that use that bus say, "You got to do something, and you got to do it now." Mm-hmm. And and that's why, like, I, I I don't I'm not fully against um, spending mm-hmm. this money on this. I, I do think, like, from a political standpoint, I think I think you've got to. There is that sort of political reality of having at least being seen to be doing something. Right. Um, but but if you're not actually solving the problem, then tomorrow it'll just be a new emergency. Like oh, somebody got attacked with a machete on the sidewalk. We got to mm-hmm. fix our sidewalks, right? So it it kind of requires sort of that multi pronged approach to not only be doing you know this that, that looks like you're doing something, but then to actually in the background be doing the things that that you know that are that are helping. You know, for yeah. instance, like the, the public washroom on Main Street um, that they're you know going to be reducing hours. You know that that is part of the solution because you know mm-hmm. it's preventing people from urinating in the street and it's 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 a collection for used syringes which would end up on the street. So rather than than reducing its hours, we've seen already in the six months it was in operation in 2022, it housed eight people. You know, it found, found housing for eight people. It you know, you know the homeless community are starting to use it as a drop-off site for used syringes. You know, it, it's providing you know on top of all the human dignity elements, it's actually providing an actual financial return to the city and making the sidewalk downtown a better place to be. Um, you know, and we're talking like the cost is like $500,000 a year. Like it's, it's not even, doesn't even qualify as a rounding error in our, in our city budget. Yeah. And, 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 and we're looking at cutting that kind of stuff um, out 
Uh, you know, we got to be doing both here. We got to we got to be putting money into these little things that cost very little, or sometimes cost nothing. Um, and you know, again, speed limits, right? Things that cost I agree. almost no, nothing. No, I I I agree completely. You're, you're right. Yeah. There's much more that could be done. I just think for for people, uh, and especially for politicians who are wanting to get reelected, there reaches a point where there needs to be action, and whether or not it's effective, um, it, 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 it is almost secondary to. But look, well, we're, here's sure. you know here's what we're doing, and and that's a problem. Yeah, and, and I think I think a big thing too is that we could be changing our approaches is is taking sort of the approach of like rather than one big thing. We should be doing a thousand little things all at once, knowing that not all of them will be successful, knowing that sometimes we have unintended consequences, like even just putting peace officers on buses. We don't know exactly what will be the result of that, but it'll have cost $5 million. At yeah. least if we do smaller steps, we, we can you know, you know, fail fast and fail cheap, right? So we know, okay, yeah. this is the problem, and then we can re- reorient our budget as we go along. We're like, okay, this worked, put more money into this. This didn't work, we forget about it. We try yeah. something new. So that's, that's yeah. sort of the approach we have to get to. Sure. You're, you're, as I said, you always generate me, you always cause me to give more thought to an issue. And so I really appreciate that. And people can get more at your dearwinnipeg.com uh, blog. Um, I do want to ask you, you mentioned uh, ridership on transit and stuff. And I saved this knowing that you and I would be talking soon. Um, listen to this report and then I want your reaction to this. A transit researcher recently said cities, including Winnipeg, should be nimble and prioritize service to get through difficult times. Take a listen to this, and then I'll get you to weigh in. Willem Klumphauer, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto, says while cities like Montreal and Halifax are reducing bus routes to save money or deal with staff shortages, these decisions actually contribute to what he calls a death spiral. He says when routes are cut and transit is less frequent or convenient, ridership declines. He explains that with then fewer paid fares, cities lose income and are inclined to further reduce routes. Klumphauer says the same cycle is affecting transit labor too because as operators leave the job remaining staff are asked to work more hours michelle uh you agree i i think that's absolutely true it's real easy to cut roots but it doesn't really de- and that saves money but does it really save money yeah and that's that's exactly the thing like as you know how i'm always uh, you know i i start from everywhere from the financial aspect of everything which is how i get to to where we are but yeah, that's exactly right. Like transit works in a kind of a death spiral kind of kind of way. The the more you cut routes, the more you cut frequency to routes, the less useful it gets, um, and therefore the more people switch to other modes um, that might be more useful to them. Therefore, you need more money. Therefore, you cut more routes. Therefore, you cut more frequency. Um, you know, and it, it is exactly a death spiral. The cool thing about transit is that it actually also works in the other direction, right? If you increase frequency, you make buses come come more often. If you if you add routes, if you if you make bus stops nicer, if you take care of sidewalks so that people can get to the bus easier, um, more people ride. You have, then have more income that you can then then deal with. And again, they talked about the labor issue as well. And it's the same thing. The more the fewer the more you lay off staff, the the fewer trained staff you have to call upon. Uh, the more the current staff is stressed about you know meeting their schedules, uh, the more they you know they burn out. Um, and then again. The idea of like more eyes on the street, you get fewer riders, fewer, not only fewer people on transit, but you get fewer people on sidewalks, fewer people in the public realm, uh, which, you know, vacates it, which makes it less safe, which feeds into itself. So it's just like a complete spiral 
in either direction, and it's up to us to choose which direction we want that to be. And again, I always take from the financial side, and I always look at like the big picture. What are right. the little things we can do? What's the next smallest step we can take to 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 reverse this? And there's a lot of things we can do for cheap or 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 very little money to reverse yeah. it. Yeah, Michelle, appreciate your time. Thanks for the conversation. I really do yeah, appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, all the time. All right, Dr. Cyrus Dirksen now, drcyrus.com, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com. Cyrus, good morning. Good morning, Hal. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for uh, jumping on here as usual. We've got some good stuff today. I'm, I'm excited to hear uh, about recovering from burnout. I'm going to save that one for last. Let's begin with this headline here. How to handle people who are eternally evasive and i know you're not talking about politicians but that's the first thing that comes to my mind <laughs> yeah i didn't prepare for the politician when we could talk about that one too though because <laughs> you're right i always answer the question with something else um and it's one of the things about being evasive is it's hard to notice at first sometimes people are just uh kind of there and they'll talk maybe but they won't answer the question and i don't know if you've ever listened to a political you're probably more experienced with this so you probably notice right away but Oftentimes when people are evasive and they just answer the question with something else, you don't even notice. And that's something that yeah. you have to first notice is that, hey, wait a minute, they didn't answer the question. Uh, this person actually just isn't answering this one. They never answer the question. They're never talking to me directly. So the first thing is to actually notice it. Then the next one to think about is that when people are obscured, when people are distant, when people um, don't interact, typically it's a great place for people to make assumptions. So when you're interacting with somebody who's kind of opaque and you can't really see what's going on because they're not responding for some reason, usually that's a prime, we do this with everybody, but it's a prime place for us to make an assumption about what's really going on. They must be evasive because blank. And we fill in that blank ourselves based on usually too little information. And so the first thing is to open your mind and just realize that, hey, maybe there's some good reasons or maybe there's a variety of reasons that could be there for why this person's being evasive. They might be anxious. They might have done something wrong that they won't admit. Um, they might actually be answering the question just in a unique way. So, for example, sometimes I'll run into people who will answer me, but they'll answer in stories. And they can only talk in stories, uh, which is a really interesting thing to watch. And so you actually have to kind of listen to a story and then maybe ask them a question. And they'll tell you another story and you kind of have to find the, the theme of it. So sometimes it's just really unique. But oftentimes it's like anxiety or maybe they're hiding something. Uh, but you don't want to make assumptions too quickly. Okay, so I've got I've got lots to say on this one. Um, people that the people that kill me are the ones that answer a question with a question. They make me crazy, <laughs> right? And there are people that do that over and over and over again. And then there are people that don't really listen to your question, right? You can say, "What mm. color is the sky today?" And they go, "Tuesday." You didn't even listen to my question. <laughs> I don't know if they're being evasive or not. And and there have been politicians over the years, and I've done this for a lot of years. When you ask, uh, I can think of one specifically, and I, I won't name that person, but I had a weekly segment with that politician, and every time we had a conversation, there would reach a point about halfway through where I could hear in my head the sound of tap dancing, because that's all this person was doing, tap dancing around my questions. <laughs> oh, it's so true. So, I mean, you're just illustrating this point of how there can be so many different things. Loss of attention can be one. Loss of interest can be another. Uh, just forgetting. People can just forget sometimes. They can have, it's amazing how sometimes people have terrible memories. And, uh, and sometimes they want to just manipulate you and make you frustrated. I mean, I think that one's pretty rare. 
Um, so, but it's one that people jump to a little bit more quickly. So, yeah, you first want to kind of figure out what you think. Just, just question your assumptions. And all of these different realities that could be behind that evasiveness uh, have different solutions. So if somebody's more anxious, maybe then you kind of try to help them to relax or you have them talk to somebody they're more comfortable with. If they're having trouble admitting something, maybe the same thing. You have them talk to somebody who's maybe a stranger in a confidential setting or to somebody that they're more comfortable with. If they're talking in stories, you kind of just maybe have to accept that. If they're having trouble paying attention, then maybe you shorten kind of the way that you talk to them. You don't talk to them in such long sentences or you, you use less description. You kind of get to the point a little bit quicker. Uh, if they have poor memory, maybe then you actually cut out a pad of paper and you kind of draw out kind of what you're talking. You sketch as you, as you talk or doodle as you talk. So all of these things have different things. And then, of course, the person is just trying to frustrate you or maybe political. Well, then I guess you're kind of in a little bit more of a game. Uh, and you might have to kind of be a bit more upfront with the person and be more direct, which is always there as well. So, yeah, the first thing is just to realize not to make too quick assumptions and that each one of those potentials uh, have, have different kind of paths to helping yourself to actually get some answers and connect with the person. All right. The next headline for Cyrus here is actually in the form of a question. Is the highly sensitive person really a narcissist at heart? Really sensitive sensitivity and narcissism connected or, or not? Well, there is a connection. I think, I mean, I don't want to go too far here. I don't want to say that, you know, narcissists are highly sensitive or anything like that. But I think that you can find narcissists everywhere. Uh, with all kinds of different personalities. And we have our trademark personality types that, you know, where you'd find narcissist realities. Uh, but I think that what, what you're seeing with this research is you're seeing that when people get into a place where they're in pain, like a highly sensitive person is often in pain uh, because they're interacting with people who are less sensitive. And so they're, every time they're interacting with somebody, they're getting this kind of too much stimulation from them. And, and so what can happen is when people are in pain, uh, when people are you know, experiencing victimization or disability or different things like that, uh, there could be interesting reactions to that. One of them being not that I have a problem, but that everybody else does. Everybody else is doing it wrong. And, um, and so you can start to feel like you're superior. And you see this with, in all kinds of situations, with all kinds of problems that people face in their life where they'll, they'll flip their, uh, their challenge in their life into something that actually makes them superior. And uh, so this is, this is something that can happen with this. Uh, it can happen with, uh, and, and it's really sensitive. I mean, if you're thinking about this, I'm uh, feeling the sensitivity as I talk about that, I've got to be careful what I say about this, because it can come across as blaming the victim. And so obviously there's a whole language there to protect people who have been victims, and that's important. Um, obviously, for obvious reasons. However, there's another side to this, where when you have been in pain, when you have been victimized, uh, you can get to a place where you just look down on everybody else. And that's not healthy either. And it's another reality. And it's really difficult to access that part when you're talking to that person, because uh, there is that sensitivity, and there is that uh, potential pain and victimization that's happened. That's all very real. Uh, and how do you get through that in order to talk about the other reality, which is the fact that not, no, not everybody is trying to hurt that person. Not everybody is kind of less than because they can't feel the things that that person's feeling. All right. And then the final headline here, how to recover from burnout. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm really anxious to hear uh, on this one from you because uh, I think a lot of people are dealing with burnout right now. Yeah. Yeah, this is a big one and it is tough. Um, I kind of look at burnout 
I mean, one of the things about burnout that's really important is that the first thing I look at is perception. So the way you perceive your reality is the way that you're going to be stressed by your reality or not stressed by your reality. I mean, there's obviously reality there, but the, the, the king here is perception of your reality. And so the first thing that you generally look at when you're talking about burnout and you're talking about stress is you talk about how you perceive your reality. But let's say that you've actually been burned out. You're in a place where it's happened. Um, one of the things that's challenging about this is that it's kind of, I mean, in my, in my mind, it's like a head injury. There's, you, when you're healing the nervous system, the, the, the challenging part of it is that it's a very slow process. And so I watch people, when I have the privilege of walking with people through, you know, these significant challenges when they've experienced, you know, and they've labeled it as a burnout and they, they're, you know, they're off of work and they're, uh, they're isolating themselves very much like a person who's uh, had a head injury. They will often go through that process over you know a significant amount of time and it's you know you have this feeling like i should be able to just get over this uh but there is this kind of slow progress often that is made slower than anybody in the in the situation would like everybody would like it to happen faster mm-hmm. uh but it does happen slowly so that's one of the first things that i'm often talking to people about these kinds of experiences is that you know it takes time uh it takes time you want to kind of you know, perceive the world differently. You want to work on all those things to actually reduce your stress. And then once you have reduced your stress, whether you're still at work or not, once you get to that place where you're able to heal, it's going to take time. And, and that's not easy to hear and it's not easy to go through. Uh, but people often will heal uh, over time. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I know a couple of people that are dealing with this right now. And it, it, as, as I talk to them, they're like, man, I just I want to get back to where I was. Like they, they're mm-hmm. frustrated with the, the time that mm-hmm. it takes. But burnout affects us mentally, physically. Mm-hmm. It, it really mm-hmm. impacts people. It does a number on us. And, you know, people, if I talk to people about this, I might say like, you know, if I cut my skin, if I got a paper cut, it's a few days. If I break a bone, it's a few weeks. But if you hurt your nervous system, uh, you know, you're talking about months uh, and years to kind of recover. Uh, and that's what we see with people who experience, you know, significant trauma in their mind, in their brain. And uh, this is, you know, I mean, it, it, you can't see it as much on an MRI, but it's, it's there. You know, the neurons are mm-hmm. different and changed and people have to move those neurons around in order to recover. And that takes time because our nervous system is just slow like that for recovery. Right. But it yeah. does happen. We just have to realize it. And if we make time for it, it's a little bit easier. If we get frustrated with ourselves over that period of time, obviously it's going to be longer even because that's another stress. Cyrus, have a great weekend. Talk to you next Friday. You too, Hal. Thanks a lot. Dr. Cyrus Dirksen, drcyrus.com, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com.